Welcome to the Truth of a Comfort Show. Today's guest is James Corbett of The Corbett Report. He's a documentary filmmaker, video creator, interviewer, article writer, and even ran his own course. He is, of course, one of the legends in the alternative media, and I'm very pleased to have him here to talk about a documentary he did. I'm not sure if it was a year or, or months ago about the concept of hopium. And I'm very pleased to have you here. How are you doing, James? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. So <laughs> the word hopium, might, people might be hearing the word opium, which I'm not. So could you just clarify the concept of hopium in sort of the context you did your documentary in? Sure, I'd sure. be happy to. So hopium, of course, is a play on opium. And the idea here is that opium uh, is a chemical substance that will provide the chemical simulacrum of pleasure um, via the opioid receptors in the brain and what have you. The physiognomy of that um, goes together so that one feels that one is having a pleasurable experience, even though it is a synthetic chemical experience that does wear off and leaves some horrible side effects. And I think the uh, the parallel here is that we can see the same process taking place, not only in the political world, I think it happens in a lot of aspects of our lives, but certainly most, I think most obviously in this day, in this era, in the political um, realm, where people become addicted to not hope, which I don't want to denigrate. And I do go in out of my way to make that point in my brief history of opium, that I'm not denigrating hope itself. I think hope is an essential and important ingredient to the human spirit that helps us, propels us forward. But hopium is the synthetic chemical substitute for hope that makes people feel that everything will be all right. There's some sort of political savior that's going to put everything all right. You just have to vote and then go back to your life and everything will be all right. And it seems ridiculous when we take that step backwards and look at it from that 30,000 foot perspective. But when it is happening, and when people are getting caught up in the momentum and the madness of the crowds in the next political savior that's going to save the day, it's incredibly effective at essentially helping people to disengage with the real world and engage with the political shadow play that's taking place on Plato's cave wall. Yeah, obviously the, the political element is the most obvious and we can discuss maybe later if it's you know more of a, a global political concept. But the most obvious is, of course, the United States, uh, America, and in your documentary, you go with Obama. So could you explain like the Jesus-like savior campaign they gave Obama, the slogans, how strong the sentiment of hopium was in the country in the media and obviously his political rallies. Sure. Now, uh, to be to be fair and to be clear, in the brief history of opium, I do start. I go back to say Woodrow Wilson back in 1916, um, promising uh, coming to re-election in 1916 on the back of his promise. He kept us out of war and then immediately plunging America directly in to World War One. Or uh, there are any number of examples you could point to around the world. For example, I spent some time on Alex, uh, Alex, Alexis, Cyprus, um, the leader of Syriza who came to power in Greece, basically campaigning against the horrible bailout deal that was being uh, that the Greek people were being thrust into with the Eurozone. 
only to immediately thrust them into an even worse deal, et cetera, et cetera. So this is certainly not an American phenomenon, but I think one one perfect shining example of this phenomenon that everyone saw when it was taking place was the selection of Barack Obama in 2008 as president of the United States. And it was something to behold for myself, um, not being caught up in that wave of momentum or hype at all. Uh, by that point in 2008, I had well and thoroughly checked out at least of the mainstream two-party sort of idea of political progress. And I'm a Canadian living in Japan, so I'm certainly not connected to the American political um, ideology. I'm not not connected to any particular political party. But I also had the remove of not being particularly interested in either of the candidates in the 2008 selection. So I, it was truly something to behold to watch the way that Barack Obama was sold to the American public. And that is the only way to put it. In fact, um, Noam Chomsky, who I have certain reservations about, shall we, shall we say, but at any rate, I think he correctly identified it um, after the fact as saying that they sold Barack Obama to the public in the same way they would sell a tube of toothpaste. Um, there was a marketing campaign and it was a strategy and it was in a remarkably effective one that was selling essentially the basic core message of the Obama 2008 election campaign was I'm not Bush. <laughs> uh, and they managed to distill that down into the phrase hope and change. And that became uh, essentially a phrase to to conjure um, the public's imagination with, because Barack Obama at that time was a junior senator who, as I say in in Hopium, uh, his greatest legislative accomplishment to that point was getting a, a post office renamed in Illinois. <laughs> I mean, he had he had no particular um, track record of anything and no reason for people to be so incredibly hyped up about his candidacy. But that was kind of the blank slate on which the marketeers could could uh, insert anything that they wanted into the public imagination. So simply with the words hope and change, well, I like hope, opium, hope, well, whatever, close enough. And I like change and I want change from that Bush guy. So um, he was sold to the public. But it was not just a political campaign. Um, as I go at pains to point out in the documentary, and as there are many examples of which, he was sold as some sort of messiah-like, god-like figure. And this was portrayed sometimes quite literally, like on the cover of Newsweek mag magazine, where he was portrayed as the god of all things, as this Shiva-like deity um, with multiple arms holding various things in his hands. Or um, he was sold as a new hope bathed in this angelic light appearing in the clouds. Um, uh, he was called the second coming on one magazine cover. Um, many people referenced him as uh, one person at the, uh, the Soul Train Awards referenced him as our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama. Indeed, after thousands of years in which heads of state were worshipped as literal gods on earth, or more recently, as divine appointees, it should come as no surprise that popular presidents and prime ministers are almost always portrayed with recourse to religious iconography. The common trope of photographing presidents with the halo of the presidential seal around them is nothing new. But even taking that history into account, the religious frenzy that Obama's appearance on the national political stage caused was, in retrospect, undeniably strange. Who is Barack Obama? Contrary to the rumors that you've heard, I was not born in a manger. I was, I was actually born on Krypton, and 
sent here by my father, Jor L, to save the planet Earth. <laughs> In the hysteria of the 2008 campaign, Obama wasn't received by the public as a political candidate with a series of policy prescriptions for improving the country. He was the god from the machine, the deus ex machina who could appear on stage and bless everyone with his absolution. Obama was not just Superman, but the god of all things, a heaven-sent shining new hope bathed in angelic light who was the literal second coming. First of all, give an honor to God and our Lord and Savior, Barack Obama. And by the time the public finally snapped from their reverie and realized that, after all, Obama was just another politician. Why is Obama facing so much opposition now? Why is he struggling so much to really fulfill the great flame of ambition and excitement that he was elected on originally in, in 2009. Well, you've touched on it to a degree. He made so many promises. We thought that he was going to be, I, I shouldn't say this at Christmas time, but the next messiah. Um, it was a, a, a type of madness that at the time was probably quite easy for a lot of people to get caught up in because it really did feel like something new and something vibrant, something was really going to change. And, of course, we saw what that turned into. And it did not take long before most of the people who had been cheerleaders for the Obama campaign started to realize that it was just going to be more of the same. But by that point, of course, the the uh, the, the marketing campaign had already had its effect. It had served to get Barack Obama into office. And that was essentially all that was necessary um, to placate the public. Um, so it is interesting to watch that phenomenon take place at a step's remove and to see the, the sort of madness and hysteria. Um, at, at any rate, today in 2023, I think it is instructive, enlightening, interesting for people who may have been caught up in that uh, initial hysteria and momentum, or perhaps were too young to have experienced it for themselves, to see the way that it was being covered in the media and what seemed quite normal to people at the time referring to Barack Obama as some sort of Superman-like figure uh, or second coming of Christ, it seems deeply strange now. But if we can apply that to our current situation, uh, for example, as I do point out in the documentary, it didn't take long before the very next big candidate to come along essentially got a lot of the same treatment, being placed on a pedestal and called a god emperor by his acolytes. Of course, I'm referring to Trump. Yeah, no, I'd love to get to Trump next, but just on Obama, like as you said in your documentary, you provided multiple like newsroom broadcasts and newspapers where they did use those exact terms, and you have to wonder, obviously, they're playing into you know some of the uh, Christianity in America, which there is still you know big large parts, and you look at the rallies, they're all cheering, hope and change, hope and change. So could you just sort of explain how, what his presidency actually turned out to be and, you know, how similar it was to Bush and, you know, he said he would close Guantanamo Bay and, you know, other, you know, other examples like that that you use in the documentary. Could you just touch on some of those that he, he literally said and then you can see the clip of when he's presidency and he's goes straight back on it, basically. 
Yes, absolutely. So there are no shortage of examples of those directly turning on exactly 180 degrees from what candidate Obama was promising. And that, that shouldn't, I think, it should not have come to anyone who was paying attention to what had happened politically, even just two years before Obama's presidency, because in 2006, the Democrats had won control of the House back from the Republicans. Um, this was obviously at the tail end of the Bush presidency. And at the time, there was a lot of talk about, oh, OK, now there's going to be this sort of war crimes tribunals and impeachment process. There's going to something is going to happen for the incredible lies that led, for example, to the Iraq war. And immediately. Um, Nancy Pelosi, the new speaker of the House, came in and said, well, impeachment is off the table and we're not going to prosecute anyone. And all of that, basically, all of that momentum, all of that excitement amongst the people that something was going to change was completely dashed, exactly parallel to 2008 when Obama came in. And one of the first things that he said in one of his first interviews is we're going to look forward. Some some things were done in, in the previous administration, but we're looking forward. We're not looking back to try to prosecute criminality in the previous administration. That was one of the first things he said. And from that point onwards, basically everything he did was an exact opposite to what he had promised on the campaign trail. One example, of course, he had given his solemn promise that he was going to close Guantanamo and the illegal military um, prison, essentially, that was uh, set up to uh, completely against the Geneva Conventions to prosecute um, suspects, people who had been accused of being terrorists, were being held in this military facility. And of course, by the end of his presidency, he had to say, well, I tried, but we just couldn't close the thing down because of the Republicans, I tell you. OK, well, there you go. There's one campaign promise off. Uh, the other another one that was extremely important, um, at least for people at the time, was the revelations in 2005, 2006 of the Bush administration's unprecedented illegal wiretapping of every American citizen um, through the NSA and the various spying programs that were even being revealed at that time. Again, before Snowden came on the scene, it was already apparent that there was some gross illegal actions that had been taken in the wake of 9-11, or at least justified by 9-11, supposedly, um, that led to in, uh, uh, incredible breaches of the Fourth Amendment. And uh, and Obama came in, of course, saying that he was going to stop those programs. And then uh, you can, again, watch his own words in the documentary, which I quote at verbatim, in which he said, well, we came in and we, my team took a look at those programs and we did expand the scope for uh, oversight of these programs, but we decided they were worth it in the end. So we decided to keep them. Corporate accounting fraud and banking malfeasance that culminated in a global financial crisis, the public was desperately hoping for change. We will remember that there is something happening in America. That we are not as divided as our politics suggest. That we are one people. We are one nation. And together, we will begin the next great chapter in the American story with three words that will ring from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea. Yes, we can. Thank you, New Hampshire. Thank you. It didn't matter that Obama, like every other con man to swindle the majority of the population in the great popularity contest we call democracy, lied about every one of his major campaign promises. It didn't matter that he lied about closing Guantanamo. I have said repeatedly that I intend to close Guantanamo and I will follow through on that. 
it is true that I have not been able to close the darn thing because of the congressional restrictions that have been placed on us. It didn't matter that he lied about ending the war of terror. And that is why, as president, I will make the fight against al-Qaeda and the Taliban the top priority that it should be. The Obama administration knowingly gave U.S. taxpayer dollars to an al-Qaeda affiliate in Sudan. A joint I-24 News Middle East Forum investigation reveals the U.S. government gave money to a designated global terror entity placed on the U.S. sanctions list over its financial support for Osama bin Laden. It didn't matter that he lied about ending the illegal wiretapping of Americans. This administration also puts forward a false choice between the liberties we cherish and the security we provide. I will provide our intelligence and law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution and our freedom. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens. I came in with a healthy skepticism about uh, these programs. My team evaluated them. We scrubbed them thoroughly. We actually expanded some of the oversight, increased some of the safeguards. But my assessment and my team's assessment uh, was that they help us prevent terrorist attacks. None of his broken promises matter because it was never about any actual concrete action. If the mass hysteria that swept over the public in 2008 was about achieving tangible results, the Nobel Committee would not have awarded Obama the Nobel Peace Prize less than one year into his first term in office while he was still waging wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and expanding Bush's drone war into Pakistan. Um, again, there are, there are no shortage of examples of these types of things. And for me, one of the, one of the things that puts it quite clearly um, in perspective, what was really happening there was the decision of the Nobel Prize Committee to award Barack Obama with a Nobel Prize literally just months into taking office before he had had a chance to do anything, literally before he had had any single substantive foreign policy decision on the table. He was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize, presumably for simply not being George W. Bush. And uh, the the stupidity, the absolute lunacy of that was, of course, played out over the course of the coming years with not only the expansion uh, and the surge in Afghanistan and the growing instability in Iraq that, of course, led to the, the Syria debacle, the rise of ISIS, all of this, which was directly helped along by the Obama administration. Uh, to the point where, of course, the Nobel Prize Committee chairman eventually had to say that he regretted giving the Nobel Peace Prize to Obama. Well, that's an interesting thing to say after the fact, but that's exactly, exactly parallel to the public's hysteria over this candidate promising hope and change who delivers absolutely none of it. And he, of course, was also involved with NATO overthrowing Libya, which turned into a huge civil war. And I mean, I've, if anyone has watched all my interviews, I seem to mention every time CNN reporting in 2017, 2018, an open slave trade in Libya. He obviously also um, bailed out the banks in 2008. He expanded the drone wars in Pakistan, Yemen, you know, and the rest, basically, you know, basically not expanded the wars you know he didn't 
wasn't maybe as ferocious with George Bush, but you know, he 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 did not deliver on his promises at all. So then, you know, actually, it, I would only differ to say that I think he was as ferocious as George W. Bush. He just wasn't as verbose about it. He wasn't uh, the the chest thumping type of war leader. He was the one that. Pre- t- tried to be the the leader from behind, and oh, don't worry, I'm 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 the peace candidate. I'm the peace president who uh, did a lot of this behind closed doors and through covert operations like Operation Timber Sycamore. So there were a lot of of those types of operations that were uh, ongoing, and as you say, an expansion, not only a continuation of every single one of Bush's uh, war uh, war on terror fronts, but an expansion into numerous other fronts, including Pakistan. Uh, drone bombings and other such things that were taking place under Obama. It, it it truly is sickening from the perspective of someone who genuinely cares about peace, who watched the dismantling, the, the complete disarmament of the peace movement uh, simply because Barack Obama had been elected president. So I guess there was no need to care about the war on terror anymore. Yeah, no, I've seen my statement. I, I, I worded it wrong. George Bush, obviously, the way he spoke was similar to reasons maybe why John McCain wouldn't have been the best candidate to get in because the world hates, you know, Republicans who, you know, you clearly war hawked. Obama was a clean speaker. You know, the way he spoke, well, you know, it was quite impressive how he conveyed his message. And maybe, you know, when he says like, oh, yeah, we we tortured some folks, you know, if a Republican said something like that, people would have been outrage so yeah no you're, you're right there but um yeah just moving on kind of in line with your your documentary as you sort of alluded to before with trump so can you explain how this sort of concept plays out again with trump and how does that basically end up being similar to obama once he becomes president right so i think it's important to understand that the addiction to hopium is not limited to either left or right sides of the political aisle it is something that is pervasive amongst the population and in fact it's almost like one feeds on the other so the excesses of a president with a d after his name is almost leads to the excesses of the president with the r after his name and the crowds will go insane in a mirror Um, cycle, uh, essentially, one after the other. So after the ascension of Lord God Obama to the highest political office in the land, it seemed inevitable that the next president on the other side of the aisle would would similarly chart a similar similar course. And that's exactly, of course, what Trump did. As I say, um, certainly it wasn't the media this time that was hyping him up as the god of all things and the second coming and what have you. But this time it was the grassroots, the spontaneous people's rising online, mostly on online image boards and other places um, where he was being touted as, as I say, in the as the meme would have it, the God Emperor who was going to the Geotis, who was going to smite the enemies and and own the libs. And so this was this was the exact mirror of that energy that Barack Obama had in his campaign for change. Again, it was tapping into that that desire that a lot of people were feeling for a substantial change in the status quo. And it's unfortunately, if there is anything that is revealed um, in this back and forth pendulum swing, it is that it is exceptionally easy to tap into that energy, the excitement of I want something new. I want something different. 
this person is different. And if you can sell yourself as being different enough, then that can actually people will tend to project whatever they want onto that blank slate. So um, we saw that develop actually in the course of Trump's campaign um, as he started to develop the the terminology that he found resonated best with the crowds. For example, drain the swamp was a uh, 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 something that I believe he said once during one of his campaign speeches and the crowd started chanting it back at him and he realized, oh, this is a good idea. So he started incorporating it into his speeches to allow that time for the crowd to get excited and to start cheering about draining the swamp. Meanwhile, in reality, as I show, after candidate Trump became President Trump, he proceeded to appoint people like Mike Pompeo and uh, uh, John Bolton and Gina Haspel and other war criminals and uh, liars uh, to positions of power in his administration. Um, And then his supporters, who had been so thoroughly bamboozled by the the hope and change 2.0 routine that Trump had successfully pulled off with his MAGA campaign, Uh, pretended that this was, again, some sort of uh, amazing, wonderful strategy for keeping your enemies closer or something like that in order to undermine his administration. But uh, it was all part of the plan. Trust the plan. So it was an interesting, again, an interesting spectacle to watch from arms remove. But as I make the point in the documentary, so I, I frame this history of hopium documentary with the idea of the deus ex machina which of course comes from ancient greek tragedies where the hero gets into some unsolvable predicament how on earth is he going to get out of this situation and literally a god would be lowered onto the stage via a machine the god from the machine would come and save the day and just declare everything over and that would be the way that the hero would get out of the situation and that it's of course it's kind of ridiculous when you think of it in those terms But actually, as a narrative device, it continues to show up in movies and 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 literature and what have you to this very day. And I think that's because, as I make the point in the documentary, it appeals to some sort of notion that we have some sort of there will be the savior who will come in and put everything right for us so that we don't have to actually do the icky work of, you know, changing things ourselves. And uh, the interesting part of the Trump deus ex machina is that Trump in himself ended up not being the God from the machine who would come and save us. It was actually Trump himself who was the hero of this tragedy, who was in trouble. He was uh, afflicted on all sides by Russiagate and other self-evident nonsense being propounded by his enemies in the media. And he needed to be saved by his own God from a machine, which turned out to be literally a machine as in QAnon, this thing that happened online which was some sort of godlike entity some q clearance patriot that was going to come and save the day by saving trump by arresting all the criminals and and doing some sort of operation that could never be clearly stated but there was something about to happen just wait for it guys and so weirdly enough the deus ex machina of the President Trump arriving on the scene to save us all actually turned into a double deus ex machina situation, which I struggle to think of a uh, a parallel in recent history. I think that might have been the the first time that sort of uh, event played out on the cave wall, which obviously made for very captivating viewing. Can you just explain what 
QAnon was a bit more for people who may not be as familiar, like how it came about, you know, the things that were said, uh, sort of what you just touched on there, but expand on it, you know, for viewers, maybe not, you know, in America or even people in America who just didn't pay much attention to it and they just heard it sort of in the news being laughed at, basically. Yes, absolutely, because it is a very strange thing. And I could certainly imagine for um, people, say, of an older vintage or people who were not terminally online in 2016, 17, 18, it would have it it would be absolute nonsense. So actually, even for people who are terminally online, it's absolute nonsense. But it was uh, an interesting show, shall we say. So in 2016, uh, towards the tail end of the campaign, um, which saw President become elected, uh, President Trump become the president in 2016, uh, we saw the the strange phenomenon of uh, uh, on a an image board on the internet called 4chan, which is infamous for being a uh, cesspool of scum and villainy, essentially, <laughs> of the dregs of the internet. Uh, there was, on, on one of the message boards there, there was someone that started posting some very very detailed and yet slightly cryptic messages about events that were about to start happening, including the arrest of Hillary Rodham Clinton and uh, the, the indictment of Huma Abedin and John Podesta and other people associated with the Clinton campaign, which was eventually, which was obviously going to lead to riots and mass unrest, and the National Guard was going to have to be called in to restore order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there was a lot of very specific things that were mentioned in these posts on this anonymous image board by someone who at that point didn't even have a name or a moniker of, of any sort. Um, obviously, those things that were specifically predicted to take place on certain dates, on such and such a date, um, Podesta will be indicted, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, those things did not happen. But for some reason, that did not derail the popularity of this poster. Uh, Instead, for some reason, uh, the mantra became, yes, this, this person, question mark, entity, group, whatever is that is posting these things has inside information and sometimes they have to give out false information in order to throw off the bad guys who are trying to take down Emperor Trump. It became this very elaborate stage play that honestly is extremely convoluted. And there were entire websites that were set up to scrutinize the posts of this anonymous poster who became known as Q um, for Q Clearance Patriot. And Q clearance is an actual security clearance that exists in the national security establishment in the U.S. And so it is a real thing. And I remember watching um, interview footage of uh, NSA whistleblower who went to prison, uh, whose name is completely escaping me at the moment. At any rate, from several years ago, 2000. 11 2010 maybe i was watching interviews with him and he had a giant q on his lapel and i remember thinking at the time wait 2010 this was way before the whole q and on thing started online in 2016 17 what what is this oh he was literally he was in the nsa he was literally q clearance oh i get it so this, it, it is a real thing um and whatever this person or entity or group or people posting on this anonymous image board were, at any rate, they claimed to be a Q clearance patriot who had inside information about the national security establishment. And over the course of three, four years of these types of posts that would appear first on 4chan, and then it moved to 8kun, I believe, which is another image board. And 
the uh, the places where this posted um, tended to change as various places got shut down and squashed and what have you. But at any rate, this poster uh, or the person posting with this particular ID um, developed a very, very elaborate system of essentially saying nothing in ways that sounded profound, um, usually using questions to prompt the reader to find out more about this or that subject. Huh? Who are the Rothschilds? Why did a plane crash in such and such a place? Things like this that clearly had something to do with events that were going on and that could lead people down various rabbit holes. Um, there's a lot to talk about with regards to specific Q drops, as they came to be known, which is the posts of this anonymous commenter. Um, that were scrutinized, and there were entire websites that were devoted to scrutinizing and analyzing each of these Q-drops. Um, there were various synchronicities that took place between Q-drops and then things that President Trump would say the next day, for example, thus proving that QAnon was some sort of, Q was some sort of insider in the Trump administration, etc., etc. Anyway, there was this entire elaborate uh, theology, essentially, that developed around this god from the machine that was promising that all the bad guys would be vanquished and everything was all right. And this continued for years. In fact, I, I am told it still continues in certain quarters. There are still people who, who actually believe that Q is still out there and is still going to change the world. And maybe Biden isn't really the president or something along those lines. But anyway, um, it, it became this very, very, very elaborate story that People, uh, again, it seems from the outside perspective, it seems the crystal clear crystallization of that hopium concept. People desperately wanted to believe that there was some good guy in the bowels of this intelligence complex that was on their side and that was about to vanquish the enemy. And all you have to do, as Q himself or itself often stated, just grab the popcorn, enjoy the show. It was literally... Uh, a, a show that people were sim simply supposed to sit back and enjoy and watch and disengage from the real world as you watch the simulacrum of reality playing out on the cave wall. Um, that, to me, is the encapsulation of what the Hopium strategy, at least in this this day and age, in this era, is really about, is about uh, uh, getting people to disengage with the world and simply wait for the savior to come along, swoop down and arrest all the bad guys. It was basically complete faith and hope in a deep state insider to basically sort of take down the deep state. And if I'm, correct me if I'm not, am I correct in saying Trump lent into it when he was asked by a reporter, are you taking down human trafficking pedophiles in, in, in the government? And he says, like, it's always like, yes, we are. Am I correct in that happened? There are, I, I don't know about that specific uh, interview you're talking about, but there were various points at which he certainly did not deny the, that there was some sort of Q reference. And there were times at which it seemed that at the very least, and this is all speculative because yeah. I certainly don't know anyway what was happening on the inside, but there were times at which it seemed either Q really was some sort of insider in the administration that was feeding this information out there, or the administration perhaps was aware of this Q phenomenon and was then playing into it by including certain code words in the next presidential tweet or 
having a rabbit appear at the uh, at at the president's Easter speech. Of course, it's just the Easter bunny, but it's also a reference to the follow the white rabbit that was being talked about in the queue drops. And again, it becomes so convoluted that you really it's easy to see why if you really and truly believe there was some sort of intelligence agency insider that was part of some grand scheme for patriots to take back control of the country, why people would devote so much time and attention to scrutinizing every single anonymous internet posting uh, pronouncement of this anonymous entity, because uh, they really did believe that the, the fate of the country depended on it. Do you think this could have just been, maybe it started as some legitimate thing or, or a joke i'm not sure but do you think it became hijacked as an intelligence operation by the administration to be used i i it's completely speculative yeah. so i will i will uh preface uh, preface this by saying uh, the only thing i can do is speculate my inclination would be to say that yes this was something that was a lark someone doing something as a joke that took off and was eventually cottoned onto, latched onto by elements of the intelligence agencies or what have you, someone on the inside. And I'm sure it became a lot bigger than the person who originally started it ever thought it would be. Um, but that's the nature, I think, of a lot of operations. They aren't necessarily, I don't think that every single person in every single industry is controlled and there's some grand script that is written that this person will one day grow up to become this person who will do this. I think uh, the easier way to do it from the perspective of people who want to steer society is to find what is becoming popular, what the public is resonating with, what they want, and then seeing if that can be co-opted in some way towards a different vision. Just before we move on to sort of the next section, can you again sort of emulate how Obama made these promises like Trump did where, you know, he's making fun of Jeb Bush about his uh, brother and all the wars. And, you know, he put out plenty of tweets pre, you know, before the campaign about how these wars suck and Obama, what's he doing with Iran? And, you know, he says all these different things and, you know, about WikiLeaks and then he gets in and again does similar to Obama, you know, he didn't technically start a new war, but he, you know, expanded the existing ones, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. So could you touch on that or, you know, other examples of that, much like Obama played out very similar? Absolutely. And for people who want further elaboration on this and, and further backup of it, not only do I have some of this in brief history of opium, I also have a podcast episode on precedent Trump that goes through a lot of the things that the candidate Trump was saying on the campaign trail versus what President Trump ultimately ended up doing. Um, it's quite blatant and it speaks for itself. But for example, as I say, drain the swamp ended up becoming putting people like Pompeo and Giuliani and Bolton and Haspel and other uh, war criminals and liars like that into positions of power. Uh, the repeated pronouncements of candidate Trump that the U.S. involvement in the Middle East is a mess and why are we there anyway and uh, there's no point to this and NATO is too large became, uh, as you say, the continuation of essentially every single front on the war of terror, um, including, of course, in Syria, where uh, President Trump uh, was apparently so convinced by the 
pictures of children who had apparently, according to the White Helmets, and how could they possibly lie, um, had been gassed by Assad himself. So, of course, uh, Trump launched the Syria strikes, for example, in the back of that misinformation, um, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, but, but at the very least, I mean, at least he drained the swamp. Am I right, guys? Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. In a tweet, the president announced former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, will be his next national security advisor. And we are going to drain the swamp of corruption in Washington, D.C. We're here to celebrate the swearing in of America's new secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. We are going to drain the swamp. President-elect Trump has named the former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani to lend his expertise on cybersecurity. It is time to drain the swamp. Gina is tough. She is strong. And when it comes to defending America, Gina will never, ever back down. I know her. Okay, I mean, not completely drain the swamp. At least fill the swamp with 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 new different swamp water. <laughs> okay, he stuck it to NATO. He got NATO, guys. NATO is, is obsolete. It's old. It's fat. It's sloppy. And I said it's obsolete. And it is. It's obsolete. But he asked me about NATO. I said it's obsolete. Recently, I have said that NATO was obsolete. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. He, uh, well, okay, he, 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 he brought the troops home. He ended all those useless, stupid wars in the Middle East. And look at the mess we have. We've destabilized the Middle East, and it's a mess. A short time ago, I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake, all right? The consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. Uh, Candidate Trump uh, talked, for example, about the thing you're not allowed to talk about, the pharmaceutical industrial complex and how vaccines have, well, there's there's beautiful children that go in to get their vaccines and a week later they have autism and other such pronouncements that candidate Trump was happy to throw around um, to the point of actually starting what was promised to be some sort of presidential commission on vaccine safety that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was being looked at as someone who might run such a presidential commission. Until Bill Gates apparently tapped Trump on the shoulder and said that wouldn't be a good idea, Mr. President, at which point that commission was scuttled. And we ended up getting, of course, well, all of the craziness of 2020, including uh, the Operation Warp Speed, um, in which Trump literally put the Department of Defense in charge of developing and distributing the completely experimental mRNA vaccines um, to the public. And um Obviously, we saw the results of that, which Trump, to this day, claims was his greatest accomplishment. 
along with uh, Moderna, who also got funding from DARPA, part of the, obviously, uh, defense, uh, defense Department. So th this was going to be one of my uh, later questions, but we might as well do it now while we're sort of on, on, the, on the topic. Sort of away from the hopium part, but sort of to do with the, the political side. So when Obama makes these claims, or Trump, or people in the UK, like I remember David Cameron saying, you know, about uh, cannabis, you know, maybe should be legalized, and then as soon as they get in power, it doesn't happen. So again, this is your speculation, I know, and it's up to you know people to make up their own mind. Are they sincere in these promises and they get in and there's a system and there's the lobbying and there's the funding that got them there and they're like, this isn't going to happen? Or are they you know, outright lying from the start or is it a mix? I would presume there is a mixture of people with different intentions, different understandings, um, but at at a certain point, I think, of attaining political power, I think it is it becomes apparent that, for example, the president of the United States does not run the United States, um, that the actual functioning of the deep state machinery, which we should reclaim that word from the way that it has been co-opted over the past several years. It is a perfectly good term for understanding deep politics, which has been written about and talked about in the English language, at any rate, um, by Peter Dale Scott, um, who has been talking about deep politics in the deep state for many, many years, um, decades even. Um, the term originates from Turkey, where there was a lot of crazy shenanigans going on with regards to their intelligence agency, government and criminals and people in bed. But at any rate, it certainly applies in the U.S. context as well as most Western democracies. And uh, I think it's a good it's a good way of understanding that the president, the prime minister, is not the literal ruler of the country who is making every decision and running everything. Uh, I, to put it in perspective in a way that people, I think, would be able to understand, you could think of uh, the the American empire as this ultimately multi-trillion dollar enterprise that goes around the world opening markets for American businesses and uh, at the point of a gun, of course, and inflicting um, American Pax Americana on the world um, with the ever-present threat of all-out nuclear war, if need be. Uh, that enterprise does not, does, it does not run on the whims of a single individual to deflect this way or that. This is something that is Clearly, there is an oligarchy that consists of um, bankers and financiers, as well as corporate chieftains, as well as people in positions of political power, as well as people in positions uh, in intelligence agencies that can do covert operations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they uh, collectively, I think, tend to run the system and the president becomes a figurehead. And at some point, and of course, this was uh, talked about by um, uh, Bill Hicks in his famous bit about the president becoming ele on election day after he's elected he gets taken into the room and they show they show him a footage of the JFK assassination from an angle no one's ever seen before any questions mr president no just what should i do next it's feeling man cuz you know there's a handful of people actually run everything that's true it's provable it's not a fuck i'm not a conspiracy nut it's provable handful very small elite run and own these corporations which include the mainstream media 
I have this feeling who's ever elected president, like Clinton was, no matter what your promises you promise on the campaign trail, blah, 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 when you win, you go into this smoky room with the 12 industrialists, capitalist scumfucks who got you in there, and you're in this smoky room, and this little uh, uh, film uh, screen comes down, and a big guy in a cigar, roll the film. And it's a shot of a Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before. It looks suspiciously off uh, the grassy knoll. And then the film, the screen goes up and the lights come up and they go to the new president. Any questions? Uh, Just what my agenda is. First we bomb Baghdad. You got it. Uh, It's funny. And of course, I don't think that's what is literally happening. But I think at some point it probably does become clear to any candidate that would actually be sincere and really did was naive enough to believe that they would be able to come in and enact the agenda that they thought they were going to enact. I think at some point it becomes clear that that is not possible. And that is not to exonerate um, the people who get put in that position or who discover that they're not able to do what they thought they were going to do by any means. Uh, I think most likely most people who get into positions of true political power probably do understand the system by the point at which they reach that position of political power. But even if not, even if it is truly a naive and truly honest person who gets into that position of power and discovers that they actually don't have the power to change that agenda, um, it is still spineless and ultimately uh, selling out humanity not to call that out at the point at which you realize that this isn't going to happen, that not one person cannot change the system because it is that that fundamental belief that there is that it is one person that will be elected into office that will change the system. That is the function that the mechanism by which hopium functions. Um, We could essentially break the spell that hopium holds on the public or break their delivery of hopium into the public's veins by breaking the delivery vehicle, the 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 syringe by which that is delivered, which is essentially this idea that you're going to go to a voting booth, you're going to pull a lever or tick a box, and someone will get into a position of power and make everything better. And if we can undermine that, I think we have a chance of, at the very least, taking people off of hopium. And like any addict, that might be scary at first, but hopefully once we get through the withdrawals from that, we could see a way towards actually escaping this seemingly endless and seemingly ever-increasing cycle. A perfect example of someone who would know the game would be someone like Joe Biden, who now, clearly, you know, you can't say he's in control, not maybe because everything's nefarious, just his genuine mental state, him on the stage, constantly doing, it's not just a gaffe here and there, it's every time he can barely speak, and you know, if he was consistent, you know, through through the years you'd be like, that's just him, but if you listen to him speak just a few years ago, he's a pretty good speaker, and you know, he's a pretty strong speaker too also on the other side of that he's been a senator for 50 years so, you know, he knows how the game's been played, he was part of pushing for the Iraq war he was part you know, vice president to Obama. So, you know, he knows there's lots of people in your ears giving you stuff. So there's no way someone like that, at least, would get there and be that naive. And just going back to a few other things there, you know, Trump, obviously, 
you know, paraded against what George Bush and everyone did, but, you know, he kills Soleimani, an Iranian general or member of the military in Iraq, you know, in a different country, which, you know, before COVID, there was, you know, the memes about World War Three. He did that, you know, that's not too dissimilar from the neocons of what they wanted to do in Iran. And, you know, he continued lots of the other wars, you know, bombing Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and, you know, there's the famous clip of him, you know, we stayed in Syria for the oil, you know, one of the most imperialist colonial things you could possibly say. Literally, like, oh, no, the only reason we stayed is for the oil. The troops are there for the oil. Thousands of years in the process between borders, between these countries and other countries that we're involved with 7,000 miles away. So we want to worry about our things. Uh, we're keeping the oil. We have the oil. The oil is secure. Uh, we left troops behind only for the oil. But I'd like to kind of get back to the hopium sort of concept, uh, and uh, we'll grow into it more after this question. But how, how much we sort of touched on it, but how much does the two party system play into this? Because you have George Bush, he's so bad. And then there's this new guy, Obama, and all the hope builds up. He's going to change things. And he has all these slogans and he speaks different. And then, oh, they're both so terrible. Trump, oh, he, you know, he's not part of that sort of establishment. You know, he may be a billionaire, but he's different. Look at the way he speaks. And then again, same. So how much does the two-party system play into this hopium sort of back and forth? I've heard you say, I'm not saying you coined it, you know, the, the Pepsi and Coca-Cola. I think it should be self-evident to anyone who, who genuinely sees hopium and this political process playing out that it is clearly something that plays on that left-right divide and the pendulum swing in the back-and-forth movement. And I, I suppose you could even make a case that to some extent Biden was the next iteration of that because uh, he was not Trump. And some people were genuinely excited about the prospect of not Trump and voted undoubtedly on the back of that and undoubtedly have been disappointed, shall we say, by the uh, the lack of effectiveness of Biden in delivering anything of substance. But clearly it wasn't this, I think, as crazy as Obama or as Trump's uh, election. So there there is an element of left and right pendulum swing to it. But I think it is deeper than that. I think it plays fundamentally on the on the concept of binaries altogether. And we see this in non-political hopium, which is being delivered to the public these days, um, through a very similar good, bad, black-white sort of uh, dichotomy that is presented to the public. There is the bad billionaire, who I think everyone can understand, even people who are inclined to trust him or to think that he's probably a, a good guy in some sense, I don't think anyone genuinely likes Bill Gates. <laughs> I think everyone understands that there's something creepy and off-putting about this dweeb, shall we say. <laughs> who am I to judge? But clearly someone who is not exactly a social uh, uh, alpha male, shall we say, um, who is in such a position of dominance over the world health organization and the structure of world health overall and all of these various aspects back in the 90s of course he was reviled really reviled by the public in a way that i think a lot of people don't remember but in the 90s he was reviled as the monopolist um at tech overlord behind the microsoft juggernaut and a lot of people were quite excited about him the prospect of him being um 
of Microsoft being broken up by antitrust law or something along those lines. Uh, and somehow that that public image was rehabilitated through billions of dollars of PR over the years. But still, I don't think anyone comes along with the idea that Bill Gates is a is an awesome, cool leader. So as opposed to that, of course, we get the other, the cool billionaire, Elon Musk, who, ah, yeah, he's he's cool and he tweets and he he memes and he speaks the kids lingo and he does all the cool things and he seems to have a sense of humor. He's a likable billionaire and he does things differently than, say, the Gates and people like that of the world. So it's easy to get behind him. I would posit that this is yet another manifestation of hopium, of people becoming excited by a false promise that, in this case, I'm fairly certain the person promising it has absolutely no intention of ever delivering, at least at least not in the sense that the people out there are, are believing that he's uh, going to deliver it. And in this case, again, I think it is that dichotomy of it's the bad billionaire versus the good billionaire. So let's get on the good billionaire side, because once people are given the binary choice, they feel that those are the only choices. And that is how this operates. So once you see, oh, I'm, I am on the political left, I identify with that. Therefore, the, the person on the right is bad. Therefore, the person on the left is good. And I can get really excited by the person on the left, whoever that is. Or I identify, I'm, I'm a cool youngin who likes to meme. And that Elon Musk guy seems really cool. I'd like to have a beer with him. I, you know what? I'm going to, I'm Team Musk. Yay. Whatever he does to own the gates of the world is must be good. Um, it's playing on that fundamental level of psychology, I think. Yeah, the thing I, I can, again, like you said, I can see why people prefer Musk to others and maybe seem as likable. You know, he's been on Joe Rogan. You know, he, he smoked a, a bit of weed on there. And, you know, I find it strange because when you hear him in interviews and, and, you know, a few years ago he's on stage, he's like the most like awkward. I find him very awkward to look at even the way he, he speaks. So when he puts out these tweets, it seems like a, a different person. I don't know if someone else does it or he, he just needs more time. to. But honestly, when I see him speak in real life, I, I found it quite even painful to watch his podcast with Joe Rogan. Just the, I find him quite an, an awkward guy. And um, again, yeah, putting faith in someone who is a military contact uh, contractor with the U.S. government. Starlink is in Ukraine. You know, uh, Tesla and his other companies get uh, subsidized by the government. So, you know, the government are constantly trying to crush people who go against them. Just look at Julian Assange. So the, this guy who literally they're, they, they're going to pay him to, to improve something. And I was thinking at first when he, he bought Twitter, I thought, you know, if he really wanted to change things, why did he buy an existing tech company? Why couldn't he have created a new one, a competitive one? And if he wanted to even troll them, call it like Twitter instead of Twitter, you know, just something to sort of mock them. But he, he chose to buy an existing one. So there's still the same amount of tech companies and it's owned by obviously a billionaire. And then I thought... You know, maybe he is going to improve free speech on it, which so far, you know, it, it does seem a bit better. And, you know, people have come back. And I thought, was it a PR move because he's got Neuralink and everyone knows your phone surveils you and you're being surveilled anywhere. And he needs to convince people that 
the thing that going in your brain isn't isn't going to be done this by the same thing. But yeah, Musk is a pretty clear example. You know, just to recommend Jason Burmus does a lot of great work on him. Obviously, you did a panel with him and Whitney Webb. But Jason Burmus goes really quite into like the DARPA element, who uh, you know ARPA, the ARPA now. That's where the internet came from. You know, which is a bit of a tangent to go on, but. I was going to ask you about Musk, but since we're there, who are the other modern-day hopium figures? We've done the political element, but what other, you know, there was the classic back in the day, the superheroes, uh, Bill Gates, the Rockefeller, but, you know, who, who, who are the modern-day ones? I'll, I'll add in that in the show notes or maybe the clip of it. Uh, or I'll quickly, I'll quickly just tell people what it was. I saw it from, from one of your documentaries. Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, uh... Bloomberg, uh, who was who was the other ones who was in it? Uh, it was uh, uh, Ted Turner. Ted Turner, and they and they basically you know coming together to speak about overpopulation. And there's like this news broadcast, and it's like the superheroes and all their faces are on these superheroes, and they're like so a bunch of billionaires are coming to speak about overpopulation, and you're like oh, you know some people are they they have good intentions, but then it's also Billionaires who are talking about overpopulation. Ted Turner has, I think, five kids. David Rockefeller, five kids. Like his whole family, there's so many Rockefellers. J.D. Rockefeller, he has like six kids. So why was, where was they? And own vast swaths of land, which yeah. they're only doing for conservation purposes. This drab software developer is a cartoon superhero using his superpower of being very rich to help save the planet. Behind closed doors on this New York campus, a secret gathering of some of the world's most powerful people. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey. It was like, well, it was like the Super Friends. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes. Together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion. Been in the room and, and see this meeting of the minds really would have been a fascinating thing. That much money, that much power around one table. It begs the question, what were they doing? What were they scheming? Total world domination? This group, together for six hours, was talking about charity, education, global health. Before wrapping up with another juvenile appeal to comic book superhero lore. The new Superman and Wonder Woman. The super rich friends. Not fighting bad guys, but fighting for good. There was no attempt to question the participants about the meeting. No space for any criticism of these billionaires. But as a PR piece, it was brilliant. It leaves the viewer with a vague sense that some kind of gathering took place in which rich people, who, let's not forget, are superheroes, talked about charity. One would have to turn to print sources to discover that the meeting was held at the personal residence of Sir Paul Nurse, then president of Rockefeller University. The invitation to the gathering was co-written by Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and David Rockefeller. The aim of the meeting was to consider how their wealth could be used to slow the growth of the world's population. Given that these extraordinarily rich and powerful men have all expressed their belief that the growing human population is the greatest threat faced by humanity, it should not be surprising that they would convene a conference to discuss how best to channel their vast wealth into the project of reducing the number of people on the planet. The attendees of the meeting later dubbed Bill Gates as the most impressive speaker at the event. Yeah, well, uh, yes, there's so much to talk about with regard to that. As to the question of the modern day hopium, I w let's stick with Musk for a moment, because I think the um, the Musk 
psyop that has happened is the probably the most pressing one, at least in the circles that I move in in alternative media, where I saw a lot of people bamboozled by the Trump slash QAnon hopium uh, a few years ago. And I heard from many of them, oh, you don't get it, James. You just don't understand. And I did get a few apologies uh, after 2020 when people started to realize the extent to which they'd been had. Um, but unfortunately, most people will pretend that they were never on board that Trump train in the first place. And right now, um, people are, there are a lot of people on the Musk train in um, so-called erstwhile alternative media who uh, tend to overlook, poo-poo, dismiss, not only, as you say, the 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 undoubted connections, um, the the on-the-record contracts um, with NASA, with various um, uh, government agencies, the literally half a billion dollars that Tesla got from the Energy Department in loans in 2010, and the half a billion dollars that uh, uh, Tesla earned from environmental credits in 2015, and the billion dollars in tax breaks that Tesla got from the uh, from Nevada to build a t Tesla Gigafactory in 2014, and the half a billion dollars in grants that Solar City received in 2015, and the 750 million dollars that Solar City received from New York State in 2016, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that's how you become a billionaire in this day and age. It's not because Musk is just a really smart guy and a pulled himself up by his bootstraps. No, he was a World Economic Forum young global leader who had uh, the sense to be pushing all of the right agenda points about sustainable development and all of these uh, solar power and electric cars and other parts that are part and parcel of the World Economic Forum agenda for one, the fourth industrial revolution transhumanist agenda. Um, Musk is on, on board and pushing every single aspect of that. But you will notice that Musk's particular line is that exactly like, well, Gates is that sort of bad, evil tech billionaire overlord. I'm the cool, good tech billionaire overlord. Uh, yeah, I guess there, there's maybe the World Economic Forum and Schwab are pushing for this kind of, you know, sustainable development. Uh, you will own nothing and be happy. But I'm I'm going to do it the cool way with Tesla. You know, you're, you'll get your cyber truck, which, of course, will be part of this electric vehicles that will eventually replace all of these icky combustion engines whereby, you know, people are decentralized. Now you're going to be on a literal grid and you're going to be um, getting your energy credits from the government in the future to in, assuming you haven't gone over your carbon allowance. But don't worry about that. Or, for example, as you mentioned, taking over Twitter, what was that ploy ultimately about? Well, Musk is on record saying that he wants to develop something like WeChat. And what is WeChat? Of course, it's the Chinese social media that has become everything. It's your digital wallet where you can keep your now your digital yuan, literally. Um, and it has your uh, it's your Facebook, it's your Twitter, it's your it's your everything all in one app. And that's what uh, Musk wants to do. But don't worry, guys. Of course, the centralization of all of that data and power in the hands of a single person, let alone in the hands of a group of people or a company would be a horrible thing. But not when it's Musk. He's the cool guy. He'll do it the right way. Um, planting brain chips in your head as part of the transhumanist nightmare that is being pushed by the Klaus Schwab's of the world is a horrible dystopian nightmare. But don't worry. 
Elon Musk is going to do it the cool way and it'll be a good thing or AI, you know, what we're seeing with ChatGBT and they're going in a bad direction. But don't worry, Musk is going to start a, an open AI. Oh, wait, he already tried that and that didn't work. But don't worry, he's going to try another open AI. And this time it'll be the cool AI that'll be a good overlord to humanity. Everything that he does is actually in line with the agenda but he's going to do it the better way. He's going to do it a cool way. You can be on board with the way Musk is going to do the exact things that the Klaus Schwabs and Bill Gates and all of these other people who are demonstrably part of this agenda, they're all pushing for the exact same things, but they're doing it in the uncool way. He's going to do it in the cool way. And so, again, you get the binary choice. You can either do it this way or you can do it that way. But don't think about not doing it at all. No, no, no. You have to take the brain chip. It's just which brain chip are you going to take? I love the the marketing line where he sort of talks about and other people too, you know, AI could be the end of us. That's why I need to do it. Like, you know, AI could be the end of us, but buy my product. Don't, don't buy anyone else's product. Buy my one. It's like the best marketing line ever. Like AI could end us. If you buy my one and make me rich, then you'll be okay. Like the best marketing line ever. It's quite funny. But um, I know we're approaching an hour, so I will uh, start to wrap it up. Uh, I had this question ready and then I actually remembered it was actually involved in your, your documentary too. Do you think Marvel sort of films and the superhero films play into this? I'm not saying intentionally like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, these Batman comics and stuff before that. I'm just saying more modern day. The Marvel, you know, the world's ending and then this one figure or collection of figures come to save the day and everyone. Does that play into the mindset up unconsciously again i'm not saying it's intentional i know you provide the example about iron man so you know if you want choose which way you want to go with this question that, that I'll, I'll leave that to you right well i certainly have talked about predictive programming before and how um the narratives that are spun for us by the hollywood dreamweavers um do tend to influence the way that we approach the world, the way that we look at the world, the way we are willing to accept things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise if we hadn't seen them beforehand. It is interesting, for example, that the fact that the obvious and the most iconic image of the AI robot takeover is, of course, the Terminator, and people will go back to Skynet time and again. Um, so those types of things have res resonance. And so I think there is some some conscious manipulation of the the collective consciousness through the creation of media. But it is, in a sense, it is deeper than that because it's not like Marvel movies invented the concept of the superhero or the uh, the idea that someone is, as I say, this goes back to thousands of years to ancient Greek tragedy. I think it is a manifestation of a fundamental human urge, a human desire for the savior who will come down and save us all from this mess because I think probably every generation in human history has been able to look around and say, this is a mess. I hope someone could come along and sort it all out for us. And of course, it's easy to understand why that would be a fantasy that a lot of people would have, because it would be the very easy way to solve our problems. Unfortunately, we can get trapped into the habit of desiring something so fervently and then visualizing it through the media that we create and all of these other ways that we spin narratives for ourselves, that we start to believe that this is really the way that the world functions. And then we start to expect it. And then we start to play that psychodrama out in the real world. And I think that is 
the, what we have been seeing certainly recently with Obama and Trump and the, those sorts of things. It is us trying to bring this Hollywood narrative into reality when it is fundamentally not a true template of how the world works. And so that is a very dangerous thing. And I guess the real question is, how do we really break that cycle? How do we break out of that mindset? And unfortunately, that is that is not going to be easy because, as I say, if this is a manifestation of a fundamental human desire that comes every generation throughout recorded human history has had some form of this story of the hero that will come down and save the day, it seems extremely unlikely that we're going to be able to break that mindset. So the Machiavellian sorts out there might say, well, then we'll use this to our advantage and we'll try to create a narrative whereby there will be the hero who will come along and save the day and free everyone uh, from needing a hero to come and save the day or something along those lines. Unfortunately, again, I think trying to uh, create and enact such a narrative will be uh, virtually impossible, um, it, given the state of political relations and financial situation, etc. What this comes down to at the very, very base level, I think, is the unhappy realization, but I think it is a realization that is necessary for us to progress from political juven, juvenile state to a more advanced adult state, is the realization that the waiting for the God Emperor figure to swoop down and save us all is itself a childlike fantasy. We have to grow up, take responsibility for our own lives and start to realize that nothing, nothing will be created that we do not create for ourselves. And uh, that is a daunting, a horrible thing to think about because, well, I, how are we going to do this? What do we have? But it, for me, time and time again, throughout the 16 years of, that I've been doing this and researching and talking about this, it keeps coming back to the fact that everything, all of the power in this system, all of the wealth, all of the, the, the power that the system wields is ultimately derived from the people. It is us participating in and giving our life's blood and work to this system that has created this incredible juggernaut in the first place. And if we choose to redirect those energies into things that we want to do, not which version of the brain chip should we pick, but no, what should we actually do with our productive time and energy and effort and wealth and resources? What should we direct our efforts to? Once we can break out of the false binary mind uh, choices that are given to us, by the would-be leader misleaders out there, I think we have a chance of actually changing this narrative in a fundamental way. But um, again, it's extremely appealing to think that this is all some stage play that's taking place out there. It's a show. We'll just munch our popcorn and watch the show and the, oh, how is it going to end? Oh, the, oh, the good guy swooped in and saved us all. Yay. Because that is what people are waiting for. Until we realize this is not a play, this is not a movie that we're watching. This is our lives that we are constructing, and we have a part to play in this. Until we realize that, nothing will fundamentally change. Well, I was going to ask for your closing thoughts, but you summed up pretty well there. But again, this again, it, it does kind of go deeper. It's you know, religion of old having you know faith in that or as a child having, you know, faith that your parents are going to, you know, they're in control, they're going to make it okay. And then now political leaders are sort of that version, like, you know, John Major and the Thatcher and, you know, in the UK of, of the 
you know, the Tories were terrible, but Tony Blair's here now, and he's, you know, he's quite young, and then, <laughs> and then he gives you, you know, the George Bush of, of Britain, and now you've got the NATO and the US empire so bad, that means Putin and China are great. You know, they might, they may be better, and, it, you know, the multipolar world, I know you have stuff to say on that. Maybe it will end up being better, you know, maybe less uh, militaristic, but, you know, don't have blind faith just because of that, is you know that don't always go with the lesser of evil you know you have to vote blue because you can't vote republican or you can't vote for the conservative party you have to vote for keir starmer even though clearly you know his name's sir keir starmer how, how the labor party is meant to be working class you know how how can him be sir and he used to be a judge with one of those silly wigs and represent the working class you know it doesn't have to be choose the lesser of evil you can just look back and be like yeah NATO and the US empire sucks and they may suck more than that, but that could have just been because they had more power. But it doesn't mean that the multipolar world is going to save everything. You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of different there because, you know, South America might have more faith in some of their leaders because they've lived through centuries of imperialism. So, you know, you might have a bit more faith in them. But again, you know, you don't have to idolize the other one because you, you hate the other basically i guess that's what it comes down to and personal responsibility rather than you know i don't really want to vote for either of them but i've got to vote for someone and it's like i'd rather just not vote for either of them and maybe you know just start taking more responsibility but it's not easy as you said you know this has been going on for centuries so it's it's, it's not a simple answer to it but anyway i really uh thank you for your time for coming on again i encourage people to check out our previous interview about the media and the documentaries you did about that which are in the show notes there and i really do recommend people watching the the hopium documentary and uh, also the one you mentioned about the the trump president i forgot about that one that one's also excellent but again thank you for coming on james uh, i really do appreciate it and uh, people check out your work at uh, the corbett report that's it thank you for having me on Thank you, James.